This episode of Inside EMS is sponsored by Echo. Core stethoscope technology by Echo helps EMS providers make confident, split-second decisions in the most challenging environments by enhancing stethoscope sounds. Learn more at echohealth.com. That's E-K-O health.com. Well, it's that time of the day again, and as you can tell immediately, I'm not Chris. As you know, I am here sometimes as the stunt double. Occasionally, I'm the stunt triple. I'm Rob Lawrence, and I'm uh, I'm here filling in for Chris, who's a little bit uh, indisposed today, and perhaps we'll talk about that. But adding the continuity to the show, as always, is the Ragin' Cajun, Kelly Grayson. Good to be here, Rob. It's good to talk with our international correspondent once again and fellow member of the Brotherhood of the Knife. It's going to be that section of the show we're going to call the TMI section. And uh, yes, <laughs> Kelly and I have both been under the knife for various reasons. Uh, I uh, managed to hike my way to a stress fracture. Uh, they discovered that it needed pinning. And when they x-rayed it, they realized that I also had a dodgy, which is English for slightly uh, off, off-colored uh, ball joint. And so I had a new hip. Uh, day 20 and i'm walking around like nothing ever happened i'm delighted to say Great. how are you getting on i'm doing well i i had uh cervical arthroplasty of c5 and c6 uh i had uh, a, a ruptured bulging disc there that was compressing my spine rather than just my uh my fifth uh cervical nerve and uh it was it was inducing a lot of symptoms i hadn't anticipated uh, i had upper extremity uh, neuropathies, really severe and weakness. And, uh, what I didn't realize until after the surgery and my symptoms had resolved that it was causing some lower extremity weakness and, uh, and, uh, pain in my hip flexors. I attributed it to, to being sedentary for three months before I could get surgical intervention. Um, and, and just being fat and deconditioned. No, it just turns out I was just fat. And the deconditioned part was went away with, uh, with, relief of the compression of my spine so i'm doing well there's a lesson there kelly of course i'm at the other end of the scale where i actually hiked my way to a stress fracture so the moral of the story is if you want to get fit don't exercise that's a joke don't take me seriously out there folks (laughs) i i got it the Um, wrong way after after having walked no more than a couple of hundred feet for three months uh, I, after my surgery, I, I went to the Texas EMS conference and I walked 12 and a half miles in three days and that was too much. And uh, I was watching the, the Texas conference. It looked like a big one and very well attended. It was, uh, you know, with, with the first time back live after COVID shut everything down, their attendance was uh, a little down. The numbers were like 2,500, which may be as, as little as 500 or as much as a thousand below their norms, but still probably the, the biggest state uh, EMS conference in the, in the country. Uh, and those are individual yeah. attendees. And as usual, they had the, the murderer's row of, of uh, talent speaking there. And I was privileged to be a part of. Excellent. It was good to see. I was following it very closely on social media. Now, of course, with the advent of the next uh, phase of, of the pandemic, uh, Omicron, or if you're listening in Ireland, Omicron um, is going to be here. <laughs> I was listening today. Um, it's uh, Wednesday today. The uh, British Prime Minister gave a press conference uh, earlier on in the day to basically put the country back indoors again to uh, impose mask mandates, to impose work from home mandates because of the efficacy, the uh, the R number of uh, Omicron. So I guess in a couple of weeks, we'll see if it's come here too. So that might actually put the, the kibosh on future conferences remains to be seen. But uh, 
the world looks quite concerned about this one. Yes, and and uh, I, I hope that it doesn't uh, flare here, and and I hope that uh, our existing vaccines are somewhat effective in in limiting its spread and, and, and the severity of symptoms. Otherwise, I have to yep. just remind resign myself to uh, my normal Zoom attire, which means that I don't have to buy pants again. I just all I need to do is wear a, a sport coat and a tie and underwear, and I can I can be a professional educator just like I have been. I have to tell you, I was uh, I did two I've done two conferences in the last three months, and it's interesting that some people I only recognize from the from the chin up. Um, you know. <laughs> Become really good friends with them, actually, over the, over the last uh, 12, 13 months. And, of course, then, oh, it's you. Wow, <laughs> I didn't realize <laughs> there was the rest of you. So that's you uh, you know, so one of the scourges of Zoom. Of Zoom yeah, yeah I, I had a few. Oh, I didn't realize you were so tall. Well, thank you very much. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's that's always a good thing, I think. Um, when Chris said that he couldn't make it today and uh, we started sharing texts about the show, I got quite excited because you mentioned uh, the trimodal peaks of death and uh, that's something we're going to talk about. And I immediately thought that sounds like a great name for a punk band. But we're going to yes, talk about does. trauma, Kelly. So do you want to set yeah. us up? Well, I was going to say, now opening for Green Day, give it up for trimodal distribution of death. The trimodal distribution of trauma death is is uh, a a study of, of how and when people die from trauma. And, and it kind of expanded on and debunked to a certain extent the famous golden hour and platinum 10 minutes uh, that was, was uh, um, coined by, by R. Adams Cowley. You know, and, and Cowley's, Cowley's origination of the, the golden hour and, and the, the platinum 10 minutes, or well, he never conceived the platinum 10 minutes, but the golden hour is based on his anecdotal experience as a wartime surgeon. And that people had had gotten uh, seemed to have better outcomes if they got surgical intervention within an hour, and it became a belief system, you know, and, and an article of faith in the EMS community when there was very little research to study it uh, or to support it, and and well-meaning but uh, uh, ultimately incorrect EMS educators extrapolated this platinum ten minutes out of that to represent our scene time and stuff, and and that. Persistent, heck, it persists in many places even today. But in the 1980s, a traumatologist named Donald Trunkey articulated the trimodal distribution of trauma death. And basically, he stated that, that trauma patients died in three peak categories. There are the immediate deaths, which almost always are unsurvivable, fatal injuries. These people are apneic and pulseless when uh, when EMS arrives and there is no point in trying to resuscitate them unless you want to become a trauma arrest yourself, rushing them to the hospital. And then there are the early deaths, which happen within the first uh, hour or so. And then there, there are the late deaths, which usually recur from multiple, uh, occur from multiple organ failure, mods, uh, and, and that sort of thing, days, weeks, or perhaps even months afterward. And trauma deaths were, were distributed across these three trimodal peaks. Uh, but, you know, in recent years, with advent of better trauma care and organized trauma systems, we've eliminated one of them. You know, actually, before we get into that, uh, you're taking me back uh, 30 years. The first 10 years of my uh, EMS leadership life was uh, in the military. I was responsible in in what we called in the UK field ambulances, which were the forward facing uh, EMS systems. Our job was to retrieve casualties from the battle space. And to, to move them back, because we were very much versed in the, the trimodal distribution, obviously in the military sense, that first peak is the bomb strike, the IED, 
for which at the time not many people survived. And of course, fast forward to Afghanistan, where we now have such speed of response, such speed of treatment, that they now have what they call unexpected survivors, because the system is so good, so slick, so professional, so clinically oriented, that those yeah. are survive that those will survive. And so that's that's a great thing. And so you know, which is hence my excitement about it, because that's one of the things that we we talked about. One of the one of the things I had under my command as a mere second lieutenant was an entire field surgical team of very very senior and professional surgeons, the best surgeons that the division had were pushed very, very forward to conduct what they called aggressive surgical resuscitation. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Is this the 4077 BJ in Hawkeye? No, it is literally arrive, clamp, shut, move. And that way it really helped. And, that, and that's kind of the origins of what became the MERT, the medical emergency response teams in Afghanistan. So that was kind of the origin, the aggressive uh, resurgical yeah. resuscitation. So you know, getting rid or, or addressing that, of course, saves more life. Now, coming back to you, you're saying we've gone from a trimodal peak to a bimodal peak. You read the literature, and and most of it attributes the 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 reduction or or near elimination of the late stage or the delayed stage of trauma death to uh, the advent of organized systems of trauma care and and better trauma centers and and all that, and and certainly that plays a role. I think that the the uh, contribution of EMS to that has has been somewhat understated. I don't know how you study it and quantify it and, uh, to give us the, the credit I think we deserve, but I think that with timely distri- uh, with timely care and managing the the things that kill people early on, that that trauma triad of death, which is another triad we'll talk about, um, those things inhibit, uh, the the inflammatory response and the and the the long term sequelae of shock that leads to that late distribution of trauma deaths. You know, if we can in, if we can restore oxygenation and perfusion, uh, keep the patient warm, keep them oxygenating and ventilating well, and plug the holes, uh, the the sequelae from anaerobic metabolism and 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 acidosis and those things that that start that inflammatory cascade and that multiple organ dysfunction syndrome that kills people in the late phases goes away. And and now we have immediate or early death. And and what I found interesting in, in my dive into the research on the topic was Callie talked about the golden hour and how important the golden hour was. But in, in Trunky's research and, and others, if you look at, at the interventions that were necessary to perform and where those deaths were dis, uh, distributed, um, as long as airway and oxygenation needs and external bleeding control was, was managed in a timely fashion, uh, it really didn't matter whether the patient got to definitive care during the golden hour or the aluminum afternoon they still had a roughly equal chance of surviving. So, so we learn even more that, that the ultimate of trauma care uh, is, is the BLS interventions. And, and what we do as paramedics is eh, maybe not all that effective, sometimes maybe even harmful. So I know we have a different accent, but let me translate. It's aluminium, Kelly, first of all. Aluminium. So, uh, aluminium. <laughs> Repeat after me. But no, you're right. And so the BLS intervention, the advent of something called the tourniquet. And so when I started my military medical career, they're like, oh, don't put one of those things on. Someone might lose a limb. Um, And of course, our thinking (laughs) has adjusted since then. But obviously, you know, BLS, the LS is the the key here. Um, And uh, doing that 
is is, is essential. And, and that's where we, as I say, we, we got into the platinum 10 minutes, pushing surgical resuscitation as far forward as possible. Because at the end of the day, a gunshot wound, for example, is a surgeon's injury, and it's something we need to stabilize and shift. Now, of course, yeah. you, you talked about, you know, that, that became the cue for dispatch centers to start sending pages, hails, uh, carrier pigeons, and everything else through to get people moving off the scene. Uh, yeah. But then again, you know, that speed is of the essence, but obviously the, 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 the pure clinical skill to know what to do and when to do it is also an absolute lifesaver. The thing with the aluminium afternoon. Thank you. Is, it's, it's that, um, the, the truly life-saving interventions, uh, I, I keep stressing to people that, that they are, uh, they are BLS interventions and, and things like stop the bleed and advocate uh, the advent of, of newer modern tourniquets uh, has changed the game. Uh, we've learned in that great trauma laboratory known as Iraq and Afghanistan in the past 20 years that the survivability of combat, for a U.S. soldier at least, has never been as high as it is right now. Combat has never been as survivable for the U.S. military members and our coalition members as it is right now. But also, we're seeing a far higher number of amputations uh, among those. Well, that much higher number of amputations are people who would have died in any other conflict. And and we're saving lives. It may cost a limb, but but sometimes that's unavoidable, especially with, with IED blasts and, and that sort of thing. But but people are coming home to leave productive lives. They may be they may be damaged, but they are alive and they can they can forge a life after after their service. Uh, that's something that was rarely seen in previous conflicts. One of the most impressive things I saw at a tour of Gettysburg once was at the Lutheran Seminary on on Seminary Ridge where Pickett's Charge uh, started. There was a fieldstone fence there with amputated limbs piled up along it higher than the fence for hundreds of feet. And that was the treatment back then. They just, just put a tourniquet on, amputated it, and didn't try any other surgical intervention. Uh, and back in the day when you put a tourniquet on, uh, on the battlefield, you might have been laying on the battlefield for two or three days before someone hauled you to the to the surgical hospital, and and that's no longer the case with with our our MERT teams and 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 our, our rapid transport. So our old thinking about tourniquets long since been been revised, and and it's proven to be such a lifesaver. Kelly, you wouldn't believe this, but we're almost halfway through the show. So when we come back, I'm going to fire some some treatment questions at you. But do you want to do the mid-show reads? Core stethoscope technology by Echo with active noise cancellation and up to 40 times amplification helps EMS providers assess those hard-to-hear heart, lung, or other body sounds in even the loudest situations. Whether you have great hearing or impaired hearing like myself, the Echo Core is extremely valuable. I had the opportunity to test one. I own it myself, and it has unlocked my auscultation superpowers. Learn more about it at echohealth.com. That's E-K-O-Health.com, and use code EMS1 for $20 off. Thank you very much. And also, don't forget, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment on whatever platform you're listening on to rate the show so uh, it goes up 
in the ratings. Uh, obviously, if you also <laughs> listen to my EMS one stop, he said plugging it, give that a rating too, so I can get above these two boys uh, in, in the ratings as well. That's enough about me. Back to you. Interestingly, I was also doing some research and, and, a, and a subject that's near and dear to my heart in terms of you know the causes of trauma outside of gunshot wounds mm-hmm. is falls. Okay, and uh, you know, you start to get into the sort of more senior years, shall we say? It is mm-hmm. the sort of low-level falls, good old-fashioned MPDS code seventeen, causing the, you know, the the neck of the femur to fracture, causing the injuries. And I always uh, talk about this because not only is the patient suffering, the medic can suffer too. Because what do you have to do when somebody falls? You have to bend over, get them up. You have to exert yourself. Uh, you also have to administer pain medication uh, and, and care for the patient uh, in a situation that is extremely painful for them. Um, but, but we stress ourselves in those falls. How often have we twisted backs, knees, hips, uh, maneuvering a, a patient to, uh, in, in a small space out of that four-by-six bathroom through tight, narrow halls, you remember the days when we actually boarded people and had to stand that spine board up and pivot it to get through those doorways. And, and thankfully now we don't have to do that, but uh, it, it's physically stressful um, helping, helping a, a patient out. Uh, and, and, yeah. and it's legally risky on those quote unquote uncomplicated falls where you think the patient only needs a lift assist. Right. And and there's a whole show in this actually, and we can probably oh, go yeah. there some other time, but I, I wanted to make the point that uh, it's not just the gunshot wound that's causing the, the trauma. It's also the things that uh, you know a lot of our senior citizens are predisposed to, which is a simple ground level fall that could crack stuff that could therefore cause you know, more trauma inevitably is going to re- require operating on if you if you've broken a a, mm-hmm. a a femur, head of the femur fracture, etc. This leads me on to the uh, second half question for you, Kelly. Quite a simple one: fluids versus presses when treating shock and obviously dealing with the trauma. The the answer to that is a perfect lawyer answer. It depends. Um, I, I and how much I are you charging to- me for that answer? That's right. Uh, $300 an hour. Um, Excellent. uh, Before I do this, I want to give a shout out to a couple of people, esteemed EMS educators and and authorities in their own right, who I picked this information up from. And this is one of the great joys of attending EMS conferences and networking with people. Five years ago, I attended a lecture by, or I was looking up a, uh, information on a a lecture about fluid therapy and and trauma resuscitation. And I came across a lecture by Mike McAvoy called, is there danger in the water? And he talks about fluid therapy and resuscitation and how it is not as beneficial as we might think. And at another conference, uh, five or six years ago, I, I added to my, my knowledge base with a, uh, a lecture from an esteemed EMS educator, David Pfeiffer, who's the program director at the paramedic uh, program at Eastern Kentucky University. Uh, Dave gave a a great lecture on shock and shock indices uh, and that sort of thing and and added to my uh, actually improved my practice. And and when I go to when you go to a lecture and, and you try to keep abreast of, of current developments, it's all too often that you you sit through a good lecture and you you nod to yourself and go, okay, that affirms what I already knew. I feel better about what I'm saying and what I'm doing now. But occasionally, 
you you stumble across a treasure trove of information that changes your practice. And this is one of those things. Fluids versus pressures. Mike introduced me to the concept of a non-responder. And according to the research, about over half, over 50% uh, in multiple studies of people where, where um, blood pressure management or perfusion management is clinically indicated, in other words, are hyperperfusing, shocky patients, over 50% of them cannot increase their cardiac output in response to fluid therapy. So you can pour all the fluids you want into them, but they're not going to get any better because of it. And more likely, you're going to make them worse. You're going to to shift their their sodium and their chloride levels uh, to crazy extremes. You're going to cause hyperchloremic acidosis and so on and so forth. Um, and, and and the fluid approach to resuscitation is an incorrect one. Um, we've known that for some time with the permissive hypotension uh, uh, theory by, by Ken Maddox and, and others. But what I didn't know was a means to quantify or to, to differentiate a fluid responder from a non-responder. How can you clinically tell before you administer the treatment whether someone is going to potentially respond positively to crystalloid uh, fluid boluses or whether you need to skip that step and move straight on to vasopressors? And, and he, he, uh, in his lecture, he taught me a trick that I've since passed on to everybody I talked to about shock, about using waveform capnography and a passive leg raise to determine fluid responsiveness. And the fluid, and by doing this, you put on a nasal capnograph line, you monitor the patient's CO2, you raise their legs to 45 degrees while they're supine. And if, they're, if their entitled CO2 comes up more than, say, five millimeters of mercury, however briefly, that's like a self-volume challenge. And it's evidence, objective evidence, that increasing circulating volume in their, in their core will bring up their cardiac output. And, and the, the data bears this out. Uh, the patient's perfusion increased and, and improved uh, pretty significantly with the volume challenge. In David's lecture, I learned an additional part of this. And I learned it from some other folks on social media who have learned to make their cardiac monitor stand up and do tricks. You can interpret a plethysmography waveform. Uh, that's a mouthful to say. I'm just going to say pleth waveform. You can interpret a pleth waveform just as, as uh, um, minutely as you would an EKG waveform or an entitled CO2 waveform. And as it turns out, if the patient's pleth waveform has uh, an oscillating waveform from moves from high amplitude to low amplitude, uh, narrow width to wide width, that sort of thing. If it oscillates back and forth and you notice that that pattern is in time with their breathing pattern, what you're looking at is a graphic representation of pulses paradoxus. And it is a pretty strong sign that the patient is centrally hypovolemic and can also respond to fluid therapy. So when you look at that pleth waveform and, and you, you watch it and you compare it to their breathing, you'll notice that when they breathe in, the pleth waveform decreases in amplitude. And when they breathe out, pleth waveform increases in amplitude. And this is because but when they're just even as little as 8 to 10% volume uh, loss, uh, their cardiac output cannot immediately compensate for the change in intrathoracic pressure. 
So when they pull a negative pressure, it takes a little bit and the heart lags behind in increasing cardiac output. So when you see those two things, the CO2 coming up with a passive leg raise and the oscillating pleth waveform, uh, pleth variability, uh, you have pretty strong indicators that that patient is, is a volume responder and can respond to fluid therapy. And if you don't see those things, conversely, that might be the patient you need to move straight to vasopressor agents on. That's the research. Uh, that's uh, some stuff from the internet uh, and Twitter. How has it worked for you in practice? It has worked very well because now one thing I learned in, in, in David's lecture that the only pulse oximeter that calculates that for you was the Massimo Mighty Sat. Um, and, and this is not a plug for Massimo, but it, uh, it, calculated a pleth variability index. And their research shows that a pleth variability index of greater than 14% differentiates responders from non-responders with uh, about 81% sensitivity and 100% specificity, which is pretty good numbers if you're using it as a litmus test for whether someone will respond to fluid therapy. But the good news is, is that you don't have to have a Massimo Matisat uh, to calculate that for you. If you just have a pulse oximeter and a pleth waveform on your monitor, you can do it. And the $20 pulse oximeters that we're buying for our EMT students also have a pleth waveform and calculate a pleth variability index for us. I've always said that if you're doing math in the middle of a resuscitation, you're already behind the, the eight ball. If we can cognitively offload and use a machine or, a, a, or a, uh, uh, an app to do that math for us, we're, we're in better shape and we can devote our, our prodigious brains to problem solving rather than memorizing minutia. Uh, and that's one of the things that, that we stress to our students, that you have ways of knowing more about your patient and doing more detailed, more specific care rather than just a catch-all treatment. Kelly, you haven't mentioned blood pressure yet. What are you going to say about that? All too often, we've taught shock as this this process, and it's and 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 we we divide we draw this dividing line between compensated and decompensated, and that dividing line is blood pressure, and it's not really a binary thing. It's not really a binary thing, and and, and we think that okay, maybe if if they get hypotensive, we can we can correct that, and the problem is solved. But in numerous studies, uh. 76, in one study, 74% of the responders uh, of, of the uh, survivors of shock achieved normal vital signs, but 76% of the people who died also achieved normal vital signs. So you can't rely on blood pressure. And all too often in EMS protocols, blood pressure is the wrong thing to rely on. Everyone looks at systolic blood pressure as the litmus test for whether your patient is perfusing well or not. And... We know, even the device manufacturers acknowledge this, that at the low end of the range, in the hypotensive range, NIBP cuffs are not accurate. They are not accurate at all. But what they are accurate is doing what they were actually designed to do. They're not NIBP cuffs. They're MAP cuffs, and they mathematically derive a systolic and a diastolic blood pressure. But what they do very, very accurately, and in fact, as accurately as an interarterial line, is determine mean arterial pressure. So what I tell people now is you, you need to throw out the systolic 90 uh, crap uh, because it's not reliable. Your ears are got, not going to be any more accurate than that NIBP machine, but you can hang your hat and base your treatment on a mean arterial pressure of 65. So that little number in parentheses 
next to the blood pressure is is your your holy grail. Follow that. Keep it better than 65 and you're going to do your patient some good. Well, thank you so much for that. I was actually mesmerized listening to what you had to say there. As I say, I'm a I'm a bit of a trauma junkie. Time has flown past already, Kelly. So uh, I think I'm just going to toss it back to you. Well, you, you know me. You get me waxing rhapsodic about a subject and I can go on forever and, and often uh, longer than our listeners want to listen. So I'll end it with that and saying, hey, that's what we think. Are there better ways to quantify shock? Uh, are there ways that we can personally, ourselves, reduce or eliminate that late phase of trauma death and make in our system a true bimodal distribution of things that we can we can now begin to, to work on as well? We'd like to hear your thoughts at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and my co-host this week, our international correspondent, Rob Lawrence, Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. Y'all also catch out his podcast. We'll catch you next week.